0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Happy Not Satisfied. My name is Dan Morrison, and I'm the founder of Happy Not Satisfied and host of this podcast. Uh, Today, I am joined by an incredibly special guest. He was a partner at PWC, which is one of the big four accounting firms, which is a big deal. And then he went on at a very young age to become a CFO, went to a lot of different companies and different industries in that role. And now he serves as the executive vice president and CFO of Biogen, which is a Fortune 500 biotech company based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. But more important than all that, he's a great person, uh, an amazing person that I look up to and love talking to. So welcome to Happy Not Satisfied, Michael McDonald.
1: Dan, thanks very much for that uh, very uh, wonderful introduction and uh, happy to be with you today. Thank you.
0: Yeah, uh Thank you for being here. Um, so before we jump into some of the the meat and potatoes of what we're going to talk about today, I think that a lot of people have probably heard CFO. They might know what it stands for, um, but maybe don't know a lot beyond that. So just for some context, could you kind of tell us what that position is, what you do, what that's all about?
1: Sure. Happy to, Dan. So thanks for the question. And um, I do think maybe it is a little bit misunderstood, but... Um, as the chief financial officer, and I'll answer in the context of a public company, which is kind of what's most familiar to me, you're owned by your shareholders. So the people that invest in, in the stock of your company are the ones that that actually own the company. And as a chief financial officer, among other things, you have a responsibility to provide returns to those shareholders and maximize the value of their investment. Um, and so uh, you really have to be thinking Each and every day, as you oversee all of the financial affairs of the company, how is it that we can best maximize value for our shareholders over the long term? Typically, you will uh, sometimes make trades of short term value in the interest of of longer term value. And tactically, the way that you typically go about that, if you were to really boil it down to its simplest terms, I would say there are three things. One is you work with your colleagues, um, both inside and outside of the company, to try to maximize your revenue streams and grow your top line as, as quickly as you can. Um, again, with the long-term focus being the primary. Secondly, you look to expand your margins. So every marginal dollar of revenue that you can produce, the more you can drop down to the bottom, the better. So you try to maximize the amount of profit that you can get out of those revenue dollars. And then third, and this is probably the hardest one of all, you need to allocate capital uh, in, a, in a in a logical and, and wise manner, uh, you have a, a limit on on dollars are finite, so they're not unlimited, and you have to pick your spots to invest organically, inorganically, buying back stock, paying a dividend, etc. Uh, all of those decisions are things that are made uh, typically by CEOs, CFOs, in conjunction with their boards.
0: Thank you. That's that's a really thorough answer. And so I would say, like, if I was listening and I didn't I didn't really have a grasp on a CFO or what an executive team does. Like I'd be like, man, that sounds kind of technical. Like there's a lot going on there, which I think it is. But in talking to you and and I think getting a little bit more of an understanding of how this world works as I've gone through business school, it seems like a lot of what's really important about what you do is related to leadership and, and relationships. Is that kind of accurate?
1: That's extremely accurate. And And a lot of it depends on the size of the company. And there may be a little bit of a, perception that um, accountants and financial officers they spend their whole day crunching numbers and they kind of sit in a, in a back room and and you know work on spreadsheets and, and PowerPoint et cetera. With an
0: abacus maybe, right? Just, With an yeah. abacus yeah. maybe.
1: Um, and I and I often like to make the joke that if you were waiting on me to create a PowerPoint presentation or a or an Excel spreadsheet, uh, it would be a very long wait and you'd be very disappointed at the end. Um, I think you some like really,
0: classmates would be surprised to hear about Excel, especially that you would say that.
1: Yeah, it's just a fact. Yeah, um, <laughs> you really you spend a lot more of your day. Depending on the size of the company, you spend a lot more of your day managing projects, working with people, managing people, making sure that you've delegated work in an appropriate way. Um, to the task made sense. You have to. We have an expression that we like to use, which is "beware of the shadow," because if you um, in a large company, if you set people running in the wrong direction, sometimes you can all of a sudden have 50 people wasting their time on something that's meaningless. So you have to be very thoughtful on on the work that you assign. And then you spend a lot of time with your peers and colleagues throughout the business. I like to think of myself as a business leader who happens to oversee finance, not unlike a chief human resources officer, who is a business leader who happens to oversee human resources. So you try to work together. Uh, with your colleagues to run the business in a logical manner, and then you have primary oversight of all the financial pieces that
0: go into that. Got it. Now that makes a lot of sense. And I didn't tell you I was going to ask you questions like this, but I, I'm I'm curious. You know, people talk a lot about uh, creating value for shareholders, like you mentioned, but then there's also, I think, a big contingency of people that are talking more and more about creating value for all the stakeholders in a company. And I, w- I guess I'm just curious kind of how you think about that. Um, and, and I guess by stakeholders, obviously we mean like the employees, the customers, and like everybody that's kind of involved.
1: Yeah, I think they all come together, to be honest. Um, I mentioned shareholders. Certainly you need to create value for your employees in order to retain them. And, and typically in a public company, the way that you do that is you have um, either stock option or restricted stock or other forms of, of equity compensation that aligns your employees with your shareholders. So if the shareholders do well, the employees do well and vice versa. Um, so those can be really, really important programs. Customer value at the end of the day, if you don't provide quality products, your customers are not going to order them and they're not going to pay for them. So um, that that just, you know, quality is just at the forefront of everything that you do. And then the other thing that's interesting, which is very specific to healthcare, is you have obligations to patients. And so, um, you know, there's this element of not only trying to um, do well, but also do good is mm-hmm. one of the expressions that I like to use, where as you're working to maximize shareholder value, you're also there for the patient and doing all that you can to to make their lives better.
0: That's incredible. And I mean, that's got to be kind of an added bonus of what you do to have that kind of impact. And in other industries, you may not have that opportunity, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, it depends on the industry. You know, I've always tried to find, you know, something that goes beyond, you know, the, the dollars and cents that was enjoyable and 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 gave you satisfaction. But I have to say healthcare kind of sits at the top because it's, it's people's health and people's lives that you're you're impacting. And um, there, there's an element of that that I find to be, you know, very rewarding.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, thank you for sharing all that and kind of moving more into the the happy not satisfied side of things here. You're obviously highly successful in your career, and and I know that you're also a very like driven person. Have lots of routines. You've run the Boston Marathon and done all kinds of things. But you know, I think something I like to talk about, and I've been thinking about a lot lately, is this idea of how successful people seem to be able to create their own luck. And that when outsiders or people that are looking on see the success, it's just the tip of the iceberg, but the whole iceberg underneath is really what went into it. And so I would be really curious if you maybe have a story or some way to relate to that idea of kind of creating your own luck.
1: Yeah. The first thing I would say, Dan, is that the Boston Marathon was a very long time ago.
0: (laughs) Hey, it still Um, counts.
1: That was was 2004. And I I, I picked a difficult year because it was... uh, almost 90 degrees that day. So it was not the best year to run a marathon, but it was a very long time ago. But it was a great experience and I very much enjoyed it. Um, I, I think there is um, there are elements of, of creating your own luck. I had a um, a former mentor that used to like the expression, the harder I work, the luckier I get. I sure. think there is an element of truth to that. But you do have to have some some luck along the way. And I think personally, if I were to try to think of the best example that I can think of, It was probably when I was uh, fortunate enough to get my first CFO role of a public company. And it's always the the first CFO role is always the hardest one to get because it's much easier to convince somebody to take a chance on you when you're a sitting CFO versus somebody who hasn't done it before. And when I was a a partner at PwC, I learned that um, EchoStar, which is uh, the brand name is Dish Network Satellite TV Company, was searching for a new CFO. And they had a formal process going on. They had a recruiter and so forth, uh, and I had I had not been contacted. And it was not common at that time. It's probably even less common now uh, that somebody coming directly out of public accounting would, would be considered for a chief financial officer role in a, in a sizable public company at the time. Dish was probably not a Fortune 500 company, but probably in the, you know, in the top 1000 in terms of, of size uh, relative to revenue and so forth. And it was Fortune 500 by the time that I left there. But I was, I was very fortunate to get that role. And the way that it came about was when I learned that they were searching, I literally just lobbed in a call to their chief human resources officer and left a voicemail that, you know, this is my name. This is who I am. And I would love to, you know, be considered if, if you would consider me. And I didn't hear anything back for, I don't know, probably three or four days. And then I got a call back uh, directly from the chief human resources officer uh, who said, why don't you go ahead and send me your resume? So I did. I had that all all ready to go in the hope that they would call back and ask for that. I sent in my resume. Again, didn't hear anything for a few days. And then uh, I got a call back again. Hey, why don't you come in and, and and spend some time just with me, just just with human resources? So I went in for a meeting. I prepared endlessly for uh, this meeting. Uh, really, just over prepared. You know, just trying to think three and four questions in. What could they possibly ask me? And I remember the one question that they did ask was, if this didn't come together, you know, we're also thinking about. Recruiting a new controller would you you'd be interested in the controllership? And I said, "No, I'm I'm here to interview for the CFO role, and that's really the only role that I would be I would be interested in." And I knew it was a it was a, an incredible long shot, and uh, you know, fortunately enough, I I got a call back, and they asked me to come back in and and meet with the existing CFO who was actually moving into an, an operational role, so he was involved in the recruiting process. Again, prepared endlessly, that meeting went well. Ultimately, I was invited back to meet with the the CEO, a fellow by the name of Charlie Ergen. Uh, Charlie, very entrepreneurial um, person who really had um, a very, very um, strong belief that um, he was looking for somebody. He would always say he was looking for three qualities. He was looking for energy, intelligence, and a need to achieve. And I learned that up front. I was coached on that by his, his um head of HR, which was really valuable. So I went into the meeting thinking, how can I convince him that I have high energy, that I'm intelligent, and that I have a need to achieve? And so that was my focus. And again, thinking three and four and five questions in, he asked great questions. It was a very intense meeting the first time, but uh, I learned a great deal. It, it went, uh, I felt as well as it could have. I prepared endlessly for it. And um, long story short, I ultimately got called back and I, and I was able to, to get the role. And it was um, somewhat improbable. Um, there were a number of people on the outside that said, you know, you're 36 years old and you're a public company CFO of a sizable company and you had no prior CFO experience. Boy, you got lucky. And they were right. I did get lucky. Um, but I also worked very hard and, and I felt like my tactics uh, around it and my commitment to trying to get the role were, were pretty um, pretty bold and, and ultimately worked out well. And uh, I have to say the first year was the hardest of my career. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, Charlie was patient with me. He gave me um, you know, some space and the ability to learn the role. And uh, I've loved being a chief financial officer ever since.
0: That's an incredible story. And I mean, you're a very humble guy. And I'm, and I'm not surprised to hear you say that. I did get lucky. But at the end of the day, I mean, It sounds like so you you essentially kind of cold called them about this role, right? It wasn't like oh oh, we're seeking this guy out and we're gonna kind of put him to the top of the pile. You you did what you had to do to get noticed, and then can you go into a little bit of what you had to do to prepare for? I'm sure what were kind of grueling interviews and meetings.
1: Yeah, no that that's accurate. That 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 actually all did happen. Now I I should caveat caveat this by saying that um, you know Charlie had a reputation for being very, very demanding and there were probably a number of very qualified CFOs that um, were not interested in the opportunity so that certainly worked to my advantage um, and um, some of the things that I did to prepare is I just tried to um, you know, think about what would a chief financial officer org chart look like? What would the areas be that I would be overseeing? The accounting piece, you know, I knew that because I was an accountant and I I had that background. But as you got into things like investor relations and um, things like, um, you know, mergers and acquisitions and and other forms of capital allocation and um, overseeing, you know, financial planning and, and analysis, which is really more finance than accounting. And people think they're the same, but they're not. I spent a lot of time talking to other people. Um, I had one confidant who had actually been a CFO, had CFO experience. And I asked, you know, how would I apply the skills that I have to learning these areas quickly? Because I couldn't come in and say, I knew how to do it, Hmm. but how could I, you know, um, demonstrate that I thought I had the aptitude to, to, um, you know, to do those areas. And I literally drew myself a schematic of like what a CFO org chart would look like. And I had all the different pieces and I had like my commentary on, you know, how I thought that I could you know, develop the skills to oversee those areas. And uh, I memorized it. So every time that they asked me a question about how would you oversee this? How would you think about that? I had it. Um, So that was that was kind of uh, my secret sauce, so to
0: speak. I love that. that. See, that's I'm so glad that you said that. And I know that you've told me before that you didn't go to business school that you kind of wish you had. But it sounds like you in a very short amount of time, almost gave yourself a business school education to be able to go in there and, and speak competently about some things that you weren't as familiar with.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say, I would say actually, once I was fortunate enough to get the role, that might have been the greatest form of business school that that I ever had. I mean, that was sure. indoctrination by fire, and you know things like having to execute on um, capital markets transactions, doing bond deals. Um, I remember doing one very early in my tenure edition um, you know, flying to New York and, you know, my mandate was, okay, you know, negotiate this bond deal with, with the bankers. And I was, you know, kind of lost. Like I was used to being in, you know, just doing like, you know, the, the accounting support for a bond deal. I was familiar with that, but how to actually negotiate it. Um, so <laughs> the first one probably wasn't my best, um, but we got through it and I had, uh, you know, I had a, a, a we had a, at the time a general counsel at, at, um, uh, at Dish, who was exceptionally good at um, negotiating deals. So I learned a lot from him and you just try to absorb. And, um, you know, you mentioned business school. I do, if I could do it over again, I would have tucked in an MBA somewhere, <laughs> but, um, ultimately, um, you know, the timing never was quite exactly right. And, um, so, so it never came together, but I, but I did get a pretty good, um, business education with a lot of the things that I've been exposed to.
0: Yeah, I think things worked out pretty, pretty well in the end. So that's great. Uh, But I I love that, that whole story about making the schematic and and memorizing it and just being, that's the thing, like you were ready to go as ready as you possibly could have been, given the circumstances when you went in there, as opposed to like, well, I hope for the best and kind of see what works out. No, I'm CFO. It's like, no, you, you made sure that that was going to happen. And I think that's such an important takeaway uh, for anybody that has aspirations of doing something like that. So that's great. And thank you for sharing that. Do you have, uh, I mean, do you have any examples of times that in your career that maybe things didn't go as, as planned or a kind of, I guess, for lack of a better way of saying it, like a failure and maybe what you took from that and learned from that?
1: Well, there certainly have been, um, plenty of failures and, um, you know one of the things you always try to do in business is not make the same mistakes twice um, if I think of a of a personal failure, just unrehearsed, I guess um, the the one that comes to mind it was sort of the exact opposite of the dish experience. It was many, many years ago um I had an opportunity that in hindsight probably could have been very interesting, and I kind of was was wringing my hands over a lot of things that in hindsight probably weren't terribly important. Uh, and maybe being a little bit of um, you know what's the expression the best is the enemy of good enough and and you know I was looking for reasons not to do it as opposed to reasons um, to do it and and I ultimately really probably didn't put my best foot forward in the process and ended up coming in second and in hindsight probably you know, or, or maybe would have come in second anyway but it was one of those things where, where you, you walk away from it and you say to yourself well you know what I didn't do my best and um to do your best and and fail. That's okay. At least for me, that's always been okay. But to, to not give your best is, um, you know, it's just a spot that you don't want to put yourself in. Um, so that, so that's one that comes to mind. Um, there are certainly other, you know, instances that I can think of on, um, you know, certainly personnel decisions are one that's, you know, the hardest thing you do is you try to, um, figure out who are the right people to hire. And, and if you're, you're running a large team in a public company, you're never going to be any more successful than the quality of your team. And um, I can think of a countless number of examples of people where um, maybe I should have given them more opportunity, or maybe that was a little bit harder on them than I should have been. Um, or, you know, maybe I gave somebody an opportunity too early and didn't keep a close enough eye on them to, to support them. Um, and they failed and, and it, when, when that happens, you know, when they fail, you fail too, because you made the decision to put them in that role and, um, you know, it, it, you win as a team and you lose as a team. So I can think of a number of examples, um, of, of things like that happening and you just learn from them and, and try to make sure you don't make the same mistake again.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No. And, and thanks for sharing that. Um, uh, in terms of a, a little bit more, maybe on your personal life and how you approach every day you know, I, I think that you're pretty into like routines and, and being into exercise and being healthy and things like that. And sort of, I guess I'm just curious what your mindset is on that and how you stay, I don't know if motivated is the right word, but disciplined, I think is a better word with all of that. And if that affects your work, like if you feel it at work that you're, you don't, you're not quite as sharp when you're not as dialed in with your routines, maybe, or, or, or any of that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. I am a big believer in routine. Um, you're correct. I do uh, enjoy exercise a great deal. I don't enjoy it quite as much as I did when I was younger. Um, I was—I uh, consider myself to be a bit of a broken jock with a lot of uh, aches and pains. And uh, there are some days when exercise feels better than others. But I try to uh, do what I can when I can, and it just—it just clears your head, and I just find that it, it puts you in a in a really good. Uh, place both um, physically and, and mentally. I think it's critically important. Um, sleep is really important. I've come to appreciate that more and more as I as I've gotten a little bit more I- advanced in age. And and one of the things that I've come to realize is that you know when you're when you're if you haven't slept well or you know something's on your mind and you're not feeling at your best, you know your your tolerance level is is much different than if you're well rested. You know your skin is a lot a lot thinner when you're um, not well rested. And so, um, that's, that's one of the challenges of the job because, you know, you're very, it's a very demanding role that you're in and you're very busy and you're working long hours. And then when you have international travel, that's the hardest one because, you know, you're trying to recover from jet lag. And when you're in different time zones, you're expected to be sort of on in that time zone in the moment. And that can be very hard, hard to do physically. And as you get older, it it gets harder, not easier. So I find, um, Exercise to be really important. Trying to keep the same routines. Um, trying to sleep as 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 well as you can, um, so that you can come, you know, every day with your very best. And then, you know, there there are days where you just are not at your best, and and that can be for, you know, any one of a number of reasons. It can be that you're, um, you've got something going on in your personal life. It can be that you're just, you know, you didn't sleep well. It could be that maybe you're not feeling you know, particularly well that day or whatever. And those are the days where you just, I think, have to accept that, you know what, maybe I'm only going to be at 70 or 80% of what I can normally produce, and I'm just going to hang in there, and I'm going to do the best I can, and then I'm going to get a good night's sleep and come back at it tomorrow. Um, Because delivering consistently is very important, but nobody's ever going to be, you know, 100% every day. There are going to be days where you think that you're, you know, on top of the world and you can do anything, and there's going to be other days where you feel, um a little bit overwhelmed and you just have to hang in there and do your very best every day.
0: Yeah. And I think it's easy to assume, you know, people that are successful, like, you know, you're, you're in a great job, obviously there's people that um, are succeeding at the highest level. And we might think like, Oh, they're just, they're superhuman, you know, but to hear someone say, you don't feel your best every day. And you just have to give the best version of yourself that day, I think is, is a good reminder. And, makes us all realize that everybody's just human and doing their best. And that's easy to forget sometimes. Um, There's one thing I think I'm interested to hear your take on. It's this idea that I, I talk about a lot of like this kind of I'll be happy once I syndrome where, you know, I think ambitious people and successful people face this a lot where you're you kind of lose the moment and you're only focused on whatever the next check mark is or whatever the next goal is, or, you know, whatever it might be for you in the end of the quarter reporting or, or whatever that might be. You know, I find myself struggling with that almost more than anything else I think in my life um and i'm i'm just curious like do how do you feel about that like how are you do you struggle sometimes with kind of not thinking as much about the process in the day to day and like focusing on the the long term and maybe feeling like you lose out on some of the the more precious moments in the in the the grind if you will or or I, like i guess i would just love to hear your take on that
1: i think it's a great question and and i think it's very easy to um Adopt the mindset, especially if you're in the middle of something that's pretty intense. Whether you know it could be an earnings call preparation, or you could be uh, working on a large transaction, and it's easy to adopt the mindset of "I can't wait till this is done. I right. can't wait till this is over." Um, and then you celebrate it once it's over if it goes well. And there's there's you know validity to that, but if that's all you have, then you know then then what good is the process? And you're spending a lot more time working on the process than you're spending celebrating the process. So I do think it's important that we remind ourselves that we're, we're lucky to be, you know, in the heat of battle sometimes, um, try to enjoy the human interactions. That's the thing that I really enjoy the most about, um, throughout my career has just been the interactions with people and the people that I've gotten to know. Uh, I've gotten to work with so many smart people, so many hardworking people, so many great leaders. And it's, um, it's something that I think you have to consistently remind yourself of. There will be moments where it's tedious or maybe you didn't enjoy it. The analogy that I like to use, which is a sports analogy is, you know, if you're, if you're playing a game and you, you know, you score a goal or you score a basket or you score a touchdown and you celebrate the moment, that feels great. That's enjoyable in the moment while it's happening. Um, you know, maybe if the game's on the line and, and, you know, you're, you're a defender and the other team is marching down the field and the team is relying on you not to make a mistake and, and give up the lead, maybe that's not so enjoyable in the moment because you're nervous. Um, and, and you can't wait for that one to be over, but you do have to focus on executing and doing your job. Um, and just, you know, appreciating the fact that, that you've been, you know, entrusted with this responsibility to, you know, to make sure that, that. You don't give away the lead, um, and and I've always been um, I've always felt very lucky to be um, in a, in a role where you have a lot of responsibility, and I think that that it's a privilege to have, and you just have to you know try to remember that and remind yourself of that of that in those moments where things are feeling a little bit tedious or a little bit of a grind, uh, because if all you have is the celebration later and you don't enjoy the process, then you're going to be pretty inefficient with your enjoyment hours so to speak.
0: I love that. That's a great line. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think even adding on to that further what I found was you know when I was th- I was a high school band director and we were going to these competitions and and we were fortunate to have things go well, I would I would have a hard time first of all focusing on the day-to-day and the process and not just think about whatever this looming thing that's coming up is. But then what I found was even when it went well, like I remember the very first time that we like won a big contest and it felt amazing. Um, And then it like, you know, kind of tapers off and then suddenly that's gone. And you're now looking to like your next hit, so to speak. Right. But by the end and near the end of sort of my career as a band director, it was like, it was just relief. Even it wasn't even like, I'm so happy. It's like, Oh, okay. Okay. Okay, good. Now, now, what do I have to do next? And so if that's all you're thinking about, it's really hard. And that's, I think I made some big changes in my life a few years ago, exactly because of this, because I realized this isn't a sustainable way to approach life. And it's not an enjoyable way to approach life. Because like you said, you know, you spend 99% of your time not doing the big thing. And so if you're not going to let yourself be happy during all that time, then, what, what are we doing? Right. So, um, I think I love your sports analogy and I think all that makes a ton of sense. Um, so one, one last sort of idea I wanted to just talk to you about before we get off here is, is sort of the essence of this phrase, happy, not satisfied, which to me is like, you know, you go to bed proud of what you did that day while looking forward to what you get to do and get to improve on the next day. Um, I would just be curious, I guess, in the context of either work or personal life, is that something that you kind of relate to that you try to, to think about, or is that, you know, where, where are you on that?
1: Yeah, there, there's a few areas that I try to focus on, you know, and I, and every day I try to look back and say, okay, you know, uh, every, every working day, you know, what are, what are the one or two things that maybe I could have done differently or could have done better? And, and a lot of what you what you think about in terms of trying to improve your performance in, in business for me um, is around decision making. The hardest part of, of, um, of the job in my opinion, if you're uh, in the C-suite at a large public company, is you are required to make decisions based upon a limited amount of information. You will never have 100% of the information that you want in order to make a decision. And if you do, it's because you bog down the process by asking for too much. It's mm-hmm. just inefficient. And if you're fortunate, you might have 60% of what you're looking for. Um, but in many cases, you have 30 or 40%. And there's just so much trust that you have to have in your instincts. Um, and so decision making is really at the forefront of what um of what many, you know, officers and public companies have to do. And so one of the things that I think about in terms of um, you know, satisfaction and making myself better is, you know, how can I make better decisions that are more informed, more efficient, you know, more accurate in hindsight, because you can always be a judge in hindsight. And most importantly, making decisions. One of the things that I learned early on in my career is that if you have 10 decisions to make, you're better off making 10 decisions and getting seven out of, of them right and three of them wrong. Then you are throwing sand in the gears, asking for more information, grinding, grinding, grinding. And in the end, you make five decisions, the other five, you don't make a decision. Well, the five you didn't make become wrong decisions because you didn't make any decision. So um, I try to focus on really improving decision making, you know, being crisp and concise and clear and decisive. That's something that's a big focus for me. And then that ties in, you know, with what we talked about before personally. You know, you can always strive to get into better shape physically. You can always strive to be, you know, stronger emotionally and um be a better leader and 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 a better um team player. And, and you know, going back to what I was saying before about smart people, hardworking people, great leaders, I've been very fortunate to work with many of them. But what I would say is that for every person who's hardworking and for every person who's smart, leaders are hard to come by. Uh leadership skill I would say is much more unique uh than many of the other things that I've seen. And so, uh, you know, making yourself a better leader and reflecting upon, you know, what did I do today to set the right example? Um, and what did I do today that I could have done better? Um, that's always been a big focus for me. And, and I know that I've made uh, improvements over time, but you can always improve. You're never going to be good enough. So that's one where um, you should never be satisfied.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think what I try to do is, is frame that in in a positive way. It's like, that's a good thing that like, there's no end. You don't just get there. It's like, let's enjoy getting better every day and having this opportunity to see what we can do at a higher level. And that's the happy part of the not satisfied equation, you know? And I think that's an important part because if you're only like trying to get better and you're not letting yourself feel the joy in that process, then again, it's like, well, what, what is it worth? But I think I think there's a way to frame it to ourselves that it's a good thing that you can always get better. And then there's enjoyment to pull from that. And so I think that's a pretty powerful thing. And I really appreciate your take on that too. Um, yeah,
1: I agree with you. I think it's um, it's an interesting concept and that's um, it's what it's about. You, you've got to enjoy the process as much as the outcome. If you can. Yeah.
0: hundred percent easier said than done. Right. I think both yep. of us definitely can relate to some times where maybe we weren't as good about that as we could have been. I know I can. Um, but anyway, I don't, I, I, I am out of things to say for right now, although I could probably ask you a million questions that uh, might go outside the scope of this conversation, but I really, really appreciate, I know how busy you are. So I appreciate you taking some time um, to be on here. And for those of you listening, if you want to learn more about happy, not satisfied, you can follow us on Instagram at happy.notsatisfied. Visit the website, happynotsatisfied.com um, and be on the lookout for the next episode. Uh, Michael, do you have any, I don't think you, do you have any social media you want to plug or anything like that? This is no. the time. Okay.
1: <laughs> no, not right now. Okay.
0: Well, I appreciate it, Michael. Thank you so much. And I'll talk to you soon.
1: My pleasure. Thank you, Dan.